This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, American Patriot, Spiritual Patriot, both being requirements, one nation under God, and the author is R.M. Trowbridge, Jr., and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome. Ah, hello, world, <laughs> and my fellow children of the Republic and ghostly friends. Well, great to have you back. Uh, this is your second book, your first book, Reclaiming National Sanity, Our Nation Under God. Uh, we had you on quite a few years ago, but you've written this new book, American Patriot, Spiritual Patriot. So let's start out with what you point out right at the beginning of your book, how our founders having the intelligence to recognize that we are body, soul, and spirit. That's very important, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, because that means you're only one part body, two parts spirit, that thusly making each individual and our nation spirit primary, the body secondary. And you say life is an intelligence test. Now explain what kind of a test this is. Failure in life is always a failure in intelligence because the intelligent man can hold to what is good for him because intelligence is precisely the ability to discriminate between right and wrong and the power or grace to choose the right. Success has as many definitions as there are individuals. Failure has only one definition, the inability to succeed choosing the right. So important then in this lifetime to understand really some foundational principles that our founding fathers understood, and, and that's why they were mostly Christian men with Christian values. That is correct, because they had four laws that they adhered to, to the best of their abilities. And the four laws are actually principles. Principles are laws that govern. So the principle of honesty governs your behavior. The principle of purity governs your behavior. The principle of unselfishness governs your behavior. And the principle of love. All those four principles are laws that govern, no matter what your personality is. This nation seems to be filled with reports on lies coming right from our government leaders. I'm going to read from your website. If you have told an intentional lie or falsehood without making it right, then you are promoting and protecting only yourself and others suffer because the lie only serves you and those complicit with the falsehood. Then you said consideration for others is a lie as well. So we recent, we have this recent example in the news right now with the uh, VA. That's correct. What he did is he told an intentional lie. And 
one of the things you have to understand regarding honesty is if you have to walk something back, that does not mean that you are honest. Honesty comes forth before you're caught. Then you have checked it and you have made it right before it has became become known. So then, and that is a very hard, now that requires attention to what it is that I'm saying. So on Capitol Hill, we have a whole lot of falsehoods coming out, and they know that it's promoting whatever it is they're trying to push through. Another example would be this uh, Gruber incident with the Affordable Care Act. Okay, He was called in, and he is an MIT graduate uh, of economics. And he knows that economics is a closed system. You can't spend more money. Uh, you can't spend your way out of debt. You can't borrow your way out of debt. He knows economics is a closed system. And he told everybody the only way you're going to sell to the American people what you want is to do is you're going to have to lie because he knew it's not going to pay for itself it cannot pay for itself and now he gets accused of lying but he did not lie he was honest up front then the those that took that they decided well we'll run with it and we'll spin the numbers or do whatever we have to do to convince the American people you can keep your doctor, you're going to save $2,500 a year, blah, blah, blah. Benjamin Franklin said to a lady who uh, asked, you know, what have you done? And he said, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Uh, another famous saying by John Adams, the Constitution is meant wholly for a religious and moral people. So... What's going on today is uh, against those two principled statements. Well, that is correct, because morals is based on your behavior, okay? Um, you can claim anything you want to be, and this is why you discern the spirit. ISIS, they are body, soul, and spirit, too, but you discern the spirit. There's evil okay they're turning christians into crispy critters okay in cages and they were doing that and we think well that, that's not going to happen to us that happened to us okay they poured gasoline on that pilot bernie okay they did the same thing here in the united states of america they did it in new york city and in the, the accelerant was called diesel fuel and the container was an aircraft flew into the buildings and incinerated Christians, turned them into crispy critters. And we think they're not coming here. They're already here. And now they're just cutting heads off of individuals. The ISIS youth program, where they're training the ISIS youngsters, is nothing else other than Hitler's youth program. Hitler's youth program, they're just in different uniforms. They're training the children. Children don't know right from wrong when they're growing up. 
So they're going to have that imprint, and that imprint will go with them, and that'll be their morality. Let's talk about some other very important areas that you've already mentioned. You have purity and selfishness and love uh, in addition to honesty. Now let's talk about purity. Why is that so important? Purity has to do with your purity of emotions. Uh, Your purity of heart, in other words, your motive for doing something. Um, Purity of motive would be this uh, Christopher Scott, Chris Kyle. Okay, He is what every young boy wishes to grow up and be like honest pure unselfish and loving in his motives toward his betrothed his wife his children his family and his nation and he had purity of emotions that's why he could get up there and he could say i'll answer to my creator for every trigger pull every one of them he has no guilt no shame no remorse because of his service so that is purity of emotions purity of heart uh, sexual purity because he's keeping the boy girl and it, and and he is honored and truthful and devoted to his wife and his family and purity of mind he has purity of mind as well he has clear thinking so that's where the purity thing comes in but it takes attention to what it is I am doing is it for me or for others let's talk about unselfishness this is another very hard principle or rule to follow because it takes your ego out of the situation and it the defiant definition of unselfishness is seeking what is right and true in every situation above what i want when one does that then you have purity of heart purity of emotions you have uh you're being honest uh, and you're being unselfish, and you're being loving because you are con- now you're externally considering those around you and their well-being, and you have taken your ego out of the equation. Right away, what comes to my mind as you say those things is what the Lord said, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the last part of the love thing, where love the truth. In other words, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're body, soul, and spirit. Then what you do is you love your neighbors yourself. So if you're condemning someone and pointing your finger at someone, you're judging them. Actually, you're judging yourself because you're seeing yourself. You may not be angry with them. You may be angry with them. But you're actually seeing yourself. They are a mirror looking back at you. Now, our website is ap-sp.com it is full of this meat okay this is not milk and applesauce for infants okay you need to have a set of permanent teeth to chew this it is difficult to swallow in the beginnings because you don't want to admit you're not coming up and measuring up to the bar that is why on my website i talk about my oval office those are the four laws if you go to that website i take the declaration of independence and i put all of these principles into the declaration of independence and they precisely what the founders were saying the adult ap-sp.com website back there you will find in there that our declaration of independence where i write to it 
uh, quote, states, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments, now our government, long established shall not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown mankind is more disposed to suffer. While evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and assertions pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. Our new guards are the four laws <clears throat> and the individual's who will uh, dispense the justice. The long train of abuses and assertions, taking someone's power or property by force, wrongful or illegal encroachment, infringement, which is the long train upon which government is riding, which consists of dishonesty, impurity, selfishness, and unlovingness, which are the pathogens, which are the causes of sufferings toward we the people, pursuing invariably the same object, the growth of the power of the government over the people. Evidences, meaning revealed, shows, makes plain, manifest, indicates, displays, exhibits, demonstrates, evidences, attests to, reveals a presence of, a quality or feeling, a design to reduce them, meaning we the people, under absolute despotism. The word will dictate appears in the Declaration of Independence. To what are the words will dictate referring? Will dictate what? Not a person. That's a dictator. Or a government. That's a dictatorship. The word dictate means a dogma of some kind. But what? What are dogmas that are not bias? These would be the four laws or principles of honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love which are not allied with any sect, any denomination, politic, organization, or institution, does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses or opposes any causes, because the principles are laws that govern. One must be able to call a rose a rose and manure manure and not confuse the fragrance based on the above dogma laws. The alternative, when the law is ignored and not remembered, is to hit the wall of punishment by that ignorance and have a really bad life experience. That is why we are one nation, a nation of laws. This does not mean that you are to be a doormat for others to wipe their feet on. We've been listening to R.M. Trowbridge, Jr., his book, American Patriot, Spiritual Patriot, both being requirements one Nation Under God. Tell us, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, Amazon.com, Universe, Barnes & Noble. Give us your website again. My website is ap-sp.com. The AP is for American Patriot, then dash the SP is for Spiritual Patriot, and then .com. Thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. Have a nice day, all of my fellow children of the Republican ghostly friends. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Dreaming Forward, Latino Voices Enhance. The Mosaic is the subtitle, and our author joining me from Chicago area in the United States is Martha E. Casaza. Welcome, Martha, to the program. Thank you so much, Jay. You have a doctorate title beside your name in addition to just the uh, the author title that you have of, of Martha. May I call you Martha, or should I call you Dr. Martha? Uh, Martha's best. Thanks. Oh, all right, very good. You have uh, decided that you wanted to share a specific story and uh, about dreaming forward. Where did the title come from? And share a little of your background and why this book got written. Well, I can tell you my background has, has been in education. I've been an educator for over 30, 35 years. And the reason I wrote this book is because when I was an administrator at a university, I got very involved in the Latino community on the south side of Chicago. And I wanted to give voice to what I found to be a very enthusiastic, energetic um, community. Uh, I wrote the book um, because I'm committed to creating systems that ensure meaningful access to education. And I feel, I feel very passionate about that. Uh, this book is a collection of stories built on family histories and dreams that brings forward voices from two communities, actually, on the south side of an urban center. The voices are Latino, primarily Mexican-American, and they represent a wide range of ages, educational levels, and family histories. The stories are deeply personal. Yeah. They, they are narrative in, in style. You have taken personal stories, the story of Fabian, Christine, Raphael, and, and so on. You have named the, uh, the individuals in the stories. Are these uh, traditional stories, are they stories of growth from uh, immigration to success? How would you describe them in specific? Actually, the stories, well, let me, let me first back up a little bit. When I first started uh, doing these interviews, I wanted to find out more about uh, a pro, um, attitude toward the public education system in the city from the Latino community. I wanted to find out what their experiences were. But as I started to interview uh, and I heard the stories, they went way beyond that and they were much richer than, than simply focusing on education. And yes, they did tell about when either um, they themselves or a member of their family decided to make the trip from Mexico to the United States and what that meant for their families. So they were often looking back and really valuing the richness of the culture that came with them and that surrounded them. Um, but they continued to dream forward to what, what they could do to make the community even healthier uh, and stronger than it was. 
it was just then. So that went way beyond education. It talked to me about the importance of community, keeping their culture, keeping their values, staying close to family. Um, it, it got to many more issues than just education. One of the sketches in your book, dealing with the idea or the concept of mosaic, deals with language, history, encouragement, community, family, safety, and education. All of those elements are part of the story and the narrative you have shared. That's right. And, and those are various elements that go into strengthening communities and making them healthier. As an educator, I believe that the school is at the heart of that and that most of that can um, come out of the school if the schools um, are redesigned. Yes. Uh, how long did it take you, Martha, to collect these stories and share them in book form? It took about, um, I'm going to say, 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. 262 pages of the stories that you are sharing. Which of them do you think is the most dramatic that uh, came across your desk and that, that you shared in, in written form? Well, the one that there, there are several that stand out to me. Uh, they're all rich in different ways, but the one that stood out to me the most, I think, was a, a young man named Fabian. Um, and I got to know Fabian because when I was dean at the university, he came to us as a duly enrolled student. That's someone who is in high school but coming to the university to get credits at the same time um, they're completing high school. And what is his background? What what made it stand out? What made it stand out is Fabian was someone who was extremely discouraged about, um, well, he had, he had a great deal of insight about what was going on in the school. He was discouraged because he wasn't uh, encouraged by his teachers. He was pretty much told, you know, you really don't have it. Why don't you just go away, essentially? Mm. Um, but he, he was determined to make it different for other students, for his younger siblings. He just wanted to, he had good advice for um, for the schools and what, what could be done. I Can I read you a portion from him? Yes, please. Story? Please do. That's chapter one in your book, by the way, for those who are listening. It's chapter one. And, and one thing he said to me that just um, almost stopped me dead cold was he said, going to school was like walking into prison where the environment is so negative, people don't respect you. People look down on you. There's no encouragement. It's like, why are you here? It's like, why are you wasting your time? Do yourself the favor and go. Just go. Um, he did stop out for a while. He did stop out because he said it was just too painful to continue. But he realized um, after he worked for a while that, that that really wasn't where he wanted to go in life. He needed to finish his education. And interestingly, while he had dropped out of the um, Chicago Public Schools, he was still coming to the university and taking courses with us. In fact, the one thing about Fabian that most of us knew so well is that he tried to take more courses than he was allowed to as a high school student because he was so determined to make a difference and achieve his dream of graduating from college. I was just going to say, these were accredited courses that he was taking. Absolutely, and he was succeeding in them. That's where he was really um, continuing his enthusiasm because he wasn't being challenged in the public schools, and he felt that. He felt he, along with many of the other um, individuals I interviewed, said, the curriculum wasn't rigorous. They didn't have high expectations. And one of my, my favorite sayings is nobody rises to low expectations. And across the board, these individuals had found low expectations in the schools. And that, that showed them lack of respect. It showed them that nobody believed in them, um, which is just a key element of, of succeeding in school. And his, his dream was to complete college and then go back and serve on the um, local school council and to make his school a better one. So he didn't go, he didn't walk away resentful and, and angry. He walked away wanting to make a difference. 
Um, tragically, Fabian was killed in a car accident, so hmm. he didn't. He, that didn't happen. Um, but he he had wonderful insights about what was going on. A sad ending to that uh, story of Fabian's life. He also was an attender or uh, went to a, a what was called a career academy. Is career academy something that is or a, a schooling or education system that's uh, unique to Chicago, or how would you describe the career academy? Well, a career academy is one where the uh, curriculum is designed to prepare you um, for a vocation, preparing you to... to um, more easily be employed after you graduate. Right. And he told me repeatedly how how embarrassed he was when he would read about how it was one of the schools, um, the lowest standing school, low performing, and that it was being they were threatening to close it down. And then that just embarrassed him. He just didn't he didn't like that. Very motivated. Were his parents originally from Mexico, or what was his cultural background? His cultural background was Mexican. His parents. Um, were not highly educated. They had come from Mexico. They weren't highly educated, but they were extremely disappointed when he decided to drop out. Um, they understood that it would be easier for them, actually, if he had a job and could help contribute to the family welfare, which is the case across much of the community, um, the people I interviewed. It, it's easier sometimes to, to stop school in the short term and bring some money back to the family. But his family, his parents wanted him to continue. They they really did push um, for him to complete school and go back. When you began writing this, Martha, and sharing these stories, a ten year period that's a that's a major commitment. Who did you want to reach with with your stories or with the stories that you included in your book? I really, I, I, I there's so many people that I want to reach. Um, <laughs> I want to reach anyone who is interested in, in education in creating healthy communities and ensuring equal resources for often overlooked populations. I'd like to reach legislators, policymakers, because I think they need to know the personal stories before uh, legislation is enacted. So many times I hear about you know, immigration reform and other policies affecting this community, yet the individual stories aren't told. Um, often these folks are labeled um, illegal aliens, they're labeled deportables, and that's um, that's so insulting, and it just lacks respect. And if people could hear the personal stories that I heard and hear the commitment to the future, I think they would change their, their um, perspective. And not everyone that you included was in that category of being illegal. They were just um, perhaps uh, residents are born in another country. You also mentioned Jose. What was the scenario for Jose? Did his story end as tragically as Fabian's? No, and Jose is a really interesting story because he had been he had been raised by parents who came from Mexico. Jose has has two children of his own now. Um, at least one of them is in college by now. Fabulous. And Jose uh, Jose's mother was a real community activist um, in the Pilsen community, and she fought very hard to create a school for the community, um, a school that the community could be proud of. It's called um, Benito Juarez School. That name means a lot in Mexico. And, and Jose went to that school. He went to that school but found it extremely challenging, extremely difficult. There were gangs. He was confronted by gangs more than once. He... Um, he found safety to be a huge issue, and he had terrible advice in school. In fact, when it when it came to, to graduation time for Jose, he was one credit short, and they said, oh, gee, sorry, uh, nobody told you about that. I guess you'll have to go pick up another credit um, across town 
at a school that was very far away. Mm. So he went and did it because he cared enough. Um, and after he graduated, despite all the challenges he found, he stayed in the community. He decided to actually buy a home in the community, raise his children there, and send his children to schools. Um, and, and he works in a public school now. He works in a school that his children attended. So he's deeply committed. He's very uh, representative of the people I interviewed. He's, despite the challenges, despite um, the crime, the, the poor schools in, in many cases, he decided to stay and raise his family there. He didn't want to lose the the culture, the familiarity of, of being around people that he'd always known, around family. Uh, he could have moved, but he didn't. He stayed. Your stories, do they deal specifically with Chicago and the educational system there, or are they stories that will will work around the country or, or actually fit into any community setting? I think they could fit into many communities, particularly uh, urban communities. Um, and interestingly, I just came back from Mexico City, where I was um, visiting a youth uh, a youth leadership program. And these youth, uh, these were high school youth, they were talking about community issues, projects they'd done to better their community, their schools, and the issues were exactly the same uh, as the ones that, that I'm hearing here. And right now I'm working on a project with a, with a foundation to ensure that these two groups get together. This book is being marketed in Mexico. I think there's a huge audience for that. What is the, the one thing you want to accomplish besides sharing the stories? I want to give this population a voice. I want this voice to resonate. I want to personalize what's going on in this very strong, very committed community. I want people to understand... Um, the individuals there, how deep their commitment is to the community, and the passion that they bring about to change. I think about Fabian. I think about Fabian all the time. He was in a school that mistreated him, didn't show him respect, yet he wanted to make a change. He was looking forward. And that's what I found again and again. You say your book reflects the authentic voices of people in vibrant Mexican-American communities in urban America. That is your underlying theme. Is this book unique, do you think, in the marketplace? I think it is unique because it's it's actual voices. I I didn't um, tell it through my voice. I told it through their voice. And um, if there was a challenge in writing this book, it was the incredible um, responsibility to make sure I reflected what they were trying to tell me. Fascinating cover on your book, beautifully done. And the stories that are included in here should challenge anybody who takes the time to investigate and read further. This is a, a great book titled Dreaming Forward. It's the Latino Voices Enhance the Mosaic. And our author, Martha E. Casaza. Martha, where can my listeners get a copy of this and also learn from the stories included in it? They can get a copy from Amazon or from iUniverse. Is there a possibility? also in a Kindle version. In a Kindle version. Have you, have you started a website where you're sharing these stories to uh, beyond the book itself? I have a website for my um, professional consulting business, and this book is listed there with a link to uh, where you can purchase it. It's it's tripassociates.com, trip, T-R-P-P, associates.com, and I will be starting a blog uh, on that website related to the voices um, that are in the book. Thank you so much for sharing their stories and sharing your passion about education and reaching those who are 
in some ways uh, set aside by some education systems. Your last name is spelled C-A-S-A-Z-Z-A. For those of you who want to do a search online, Martha E. Casaza has been my guest. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you so much. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is one that should be of interest to anyone that's a history buff because this book title is Edward IV, England's Forgotten Warrior King. His life, his people, and his legacy. Joining me from San Antonio, Texas, by way of Australia, Dr. Anthony Corbett. Welcome, sir, to the program. How are you today? Doing well, sir. This book is an ambitious work, 466 pages. Have you been a professor of um, history, or is this a side issue, a fascination that you wanted to fulfill? Uh, the latter. I, I have been a professor of pediatrics. Um, I have held um, academic, academic appointments in, uh, in Houston, uh, here in San Antonio, and in Atlanta, Georgia, briefly. Um, sure, so little... I'm a professor of pediatrics. Not pediatrics, history. not, not, not but history. But I've always loved English history. Edward the Fourth. Share a little of his background. Why did this particular king become a fascination of yours, and why did you want to tell his story? Well, I was originally from Australia, and I went to a private school in uh, Adelaide. And um, one of my my favorite subjects was undoubtedly history, English history. But I did go into medicine eventually. And recently I retired after 50 years of medicine. And uh, then I, so I went back to my childhood or adolescent uh, interests, namely in English history. And one of the most um, fascinating kings in English history is, of course, Edward IV. Edward IV was probably one of the better English kings, but he certainly had a very controversial uh, reign and a very interesting reign, and uh, well worth looking into. Flesh out for my listeners the time frame and the life of Edward IV and why he was described as a warrior king. Edward was uh, born in 
How long did the research take, Dr. Corbett, to uh, complete this particular uh, observation of the king? The book, the book took me about, I, I would say, three, three and a half years to write. That's not a long period, I wouldn't so think, took, for a 466-page so book. It took me a long time. Well, for some, that's a long time. I've talked to some authors that have taken 10 or 20 years to write a very short dissertation or a novel. This one has so much research that right. had to be in there to ensure it was accurate. You have uh, discussed the struggle for the crown and also his legacy, his story. There is more to his life than just the warrior aspects of his reign. Share a little of his personal life. What did you discover there? Edward was uh, uh, charming, winsome. He was a, a super politician. He remembered people's names. He remembered people's occupations. He was always interested in his, in his people, and he was a very successful king. He produced a commercial uh, boom in England, and he made several reforms which uh, made life easier for English people. But he was always worried by the struggle for the crown. So he, first of all, he had to struggle to get the crown, and then he had to struggle to keep the crown. Edward was uh, very friendly. He liked his women folk. He was considered to be promiscuous. He never forced himself upon his uh, lady friends, but he had many, and um, promiscuity was considered to be one of his faults. Hmm. He had many... Uh, he, he was a good uh, socializer. He had many feasts at the palace. He had many festive occasions at the palace. He married for love, which was not something that uh, you did in the me when you were a medieval king. He married Elizabeth Woodville, who became his queen. She was a commoner. She was a commoner. So she was a subject commoner. He, he married her in 1464. And um, it was a somewhat unpopular maneuver because people were used to kings making political and commercial treaties uh, around their marriages. Uh, Edward was different. He married for love. Even though he was promiscuous, uh, he nevertheless remained very close to his queen, Elizabeth. One of the stories that you share is the 1461 marriage contract story. What does that entail? Well, a marriage contract was something you know, which in the Middle Ages was very easy to uh, create. All you had to, had to do was say to a woman, I do marry you, and that became a marriage contract. Amazing. Very easy to... Um, to get into a marriage contract, and it was very difficult, nevertheless, to prove a marriage contract. When Edward died in 1483, he was succeeded by his son, Edward V, who was only 12 years of age. He was seized by his uncle, 
Richard III, uh, Richard Duke of Gloucester at that point. And after about two months, Richard III decided to seize the throne, take it away from Edward V. And the pretext for doing that was that King Edward IV was married by marriage contract in 1461, which made his marriage in 1464 to Queen Elizabeth Woodville bigamous. Ouch. And hence, the children of the marriage were not legitimate, and they were not able to inherit, and therefore Edward V was not a rightful king of England. Fascinating story. What was the relationship between the crown and religion or the church during that period? Uh, it was very close. Um, religion was a very... Uh, important part of medieval life and the subject of uh, marriage and uh, marriage validity. The breakup of marriage was very much the, uh, the uh, responsibility of the church, uh, which of course was the, was the Orthodox Catholic Church. In those times. In those times. Yeah. Or the English Reformation, yes. English Reformation. This story, who did you want to reach with this tale? Why did you want to share it with the world? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of publicity about Richard III, and there's a lot of, lot of publicity about the War of the Roses. And, and so uh, I think it's a, very important, it's a very important part of English history. And people, I'm always amazed how people in the Northeast, especially of, uh, of America, are very interested in English history. Mm. Uh, if you go to other parts of uh, America, there's not much interest at all. Uh, but in the Northeast, especially in Boston, New York, people are very interested in English history. And I think they've been particularly stirred up by the, the news about uh, the, the discovery of where Richard III is buried. Is there a shocking incident that occurred during your research as far as uh, uncovering the life of Edward IV, that the reader is going to find a fascinating tale and make them want to delve deeper in history? Well, the question is, was there or was there not a marriage contract uh, in 1461? which preceded the, uh, the marriage to Queen Elizabeth Woodville in 1464. The, the first suggestion of a marriage contract came in early June of uh, 1483, an excellent pretext for seizing the throne. Let's say that Edward IV had a marriage contract in 1461, and therefore his 64 marriage was invalid, therefore Edward V was not legitimate, and therefore Edward V could not be the rightful king of England, and so Richard III had a good pretext for seizing the throne, which he did later in 1483. What do you feel was his legacy, Edward IV? Well, his legacy became this contract business, mm. because um, Edward V's reign was only 77 days, and then uh, he, was thrown into the, he was thrown into the tower along with his brother Richard, so these, these you may remember, you may uh, have heard of the princes in the tower, one of the very interesting parts of English history, that yes. two princes were thrown in the tower, and they never emerged alive. And the question is, did they die? Did they escape? And my view of this is that they died in the tower. In fact, uh, I believe that they were murdered in the tower. Oh. Um, and that's described by Sir Thomas More uh, in his book, The History of Richard III. Some people don't agree with that, but I think the preponderance of the evidence is that the two princes, Edward V and his brother Richard, were murdered in the tower. 
incredible story. Is there some parallel that has emerged from your writing that would be adaptable to the current status of the monarchy in England? Well, when when Edward IV came to the throne in 1461, the throne was in a terrible was in terrible shape. Since 1422, Henry VI had been king. He was the son of of Henry V. Henry V was famous for his magnificent military victory at the Battle of Bagincourt in France. While Henry VI was on uh, the throne, the Hundred Years' War in France was coming to an end, and the end was not particularly favourable to England. England was losing militarily. They were being forced out of France. They lost two very important battles, the, the Battle of Formigny, uh, and they lost the, uh, the, the Battle of Castillon. So things were going bad for England. The monarchy was in terrible shape. Henry was giving things away, uh, wasn't making rules. There were rebellions. There was almost, they were almost on the verge of civil war. And in fact, civil war did break out, uh, and Henry lost badly at the Battle of... Um, of St. Albans in 1455. So the monarchy was in bad shape. Henry the Henry the Sixth was more interested in his own personal life and in his religious beliefs. He wasn't very interested in ruling the country, and his favourites uh, managed the country and looked after themselves. Mm. So bad shape for the monarchy, and it was Edward the Edward the Fourth who restored the prestige of the monarchy. Edward was a powerful, influential king, and he was largely responsible for restoring the, um, the prestige of the monarchy. It was in terrible shape when he took over. And what you've described is a king who was approachable by the common man. The common man loved the king. The king, king Edward IV was a beloved king. He was very, very popular, more so than many other kings. A lot of kings have not done very well, but uh, Edward IV did extremely well. Would you, would you describe your, your writing as uh, having intrigue and also adventure included in the narrative? Oh, yes. For the first ten years of his reign, there were Lancastrian rebellions. Uh, so, for, so that's from 1461 to uh, 1471. And in 1469, there was fought a major battle, the Battle of Edgecote, Edward was not present at that battle. He tried to get there, but he couldn't, he couldn't make it, and his forces were badly defeated. After that, Edward was captured by the Earl of Warwick's men, and he was imprisoned. And the Earl of Warwick ruled the kingdom with Edward imprisoned. But in, in 1470, Edward escaped and raised an army and won the Battle of Empingham in 14. 1470. Dr. Corbett, how did Edward IV regain his kingdom? After he escaped from imprisonment, he won the Battle of Empingham, and following that he drove the Earl of Warwick um, out of the country. But then the Earl of Warwick returned and uh, forced Edward to flee. Edward fled to the low, the low countries, what we now call Belgium, it was now it was called Burgundy in those days. And he, when he was in Bruges, he uh, organized with the Duke of Burgundy for a fleet and some soldiers 
and he reinvaded England to recover his kingdom. He sailed up the English Channel to the north and landed at Ravenspur in the north of England in Yorkshire. And from there he uh, pushed south against the Earl of Warwick and eventually uh, entered, entered London. He was reunited with his queen, met for the first time his heir, who was later Edward V, the fourth. And then he turned to the north and headed north of London and confronted Warwick and won the Battle of Barnet. Barnet had about 20,000 men. Edward had about 10,000 men, but Edward was the victor. Uh, on the same day, the, uh, the Lancastrian queen, Queen Margaret Anjou, landed in, um, in England uh, with an army. And when confronted with the news of Barnet, uh, she wanted to go back to France. But uh, she was persuaded otherwise to head for Wales to uh, obtain support there. Edward followed her across the south of England to to the area uh, of um, where the River Avon combines with the River Severn, and Edward won the Battle of Tewkesbury, T-E-W-K-E-S, Bury, Tewkesbury. That was a major victory for uh, Edward IV. From there, they returned to London with a military procession resembling that of a Roman consul, and Edward IV then was able to reign in peace without too many or without much in the way of Lancastrian rebellion. Fascinating character. Thank you for sharing that uh, insight as well. What you've described is a um, book that may be historical in nature but reads like a novel. So you've done a wonderful job in recounting the story yeah. and the history of Edward IV, England's forgotten warrior king, his life, his people, and his legacy. My guest has been Dr. Anthony Corbett. Dr. Corbett, where can my listeners get a copy of this exciting tale? Buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Barnes & Noble. Our universe has a bookstore. You can buy it there. Any possibility you will be doing a sequel to this particular edition or this particular release? Uh, not at the moment. Not at the moment. I'm toying with the idea of doing something different about the Scottish kings. But uh, I haven't made much progress with that yet. This is a wonderful book, and those who have an interest in history and want to learn from the past, they will enjoy this adventure. Ed Edward IV, England's forgotten warrior king, his life, his people, and his legacy. And you can do a research online if you uh, choose to under Dr. Anthony Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T. Find out about this book, and should there be a book in the future, it will also pop up under his name. Dr. Corbett, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you. Honored to visit with you. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.